This podcast is supported by Audible. To find out how you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible, check out audibletrial.com slash lead. This is Larry Keeley, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? Um, I'm uh, Larry Keeley, David, and for... 30 years now, owing to a nearly catastrophic lack of imagination on my part, I've worked on only one question, which is how you get innovation to succeed instead of fail. <laughs> only one question. Yeah, because it's a simple question. And so shame shame on you for for working so long on yeah, it. being such a slow learner. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. It, not like it's an incredibly calculated, uh, incredibly complex problem. Well, <laughs> along that line um, is a new book that kind of builds on some some um, older research, some stuff that's been out that you've had out there for a while, which is this 10 Types of Innovation. Now in, in kind of a newer book, book that is, I have to say before we go any further, is absolutely uh, beautiful, very, very visual. And I think, you know, I hope in the future of everybody's talking about uh, digital and ebooks versus print, I feel like this is one of those books that's that's helping to innovate the uh, the published book, the hard copy book market by being so well designed and so beautiful. Um, but that's it, very, very uncommonly gracious, David. Uh, <laughs> I want to give the credit to the design firm that did the work, Pentagram, and to my design-trained colleague, Ryan Pickell, who uh, worked with him to make it great. Ah, but you guys uh, also were willing to take it and, and uh, have it be that way instead of a traditional book. So you all deserve deserve some credit there. Um, the other cool thing that the book does is it takes this 10 types of innovation and it kind of breaks them down into what you sort of call the periodic table of different types of innovation. First, I, I kind of want to talk about the, the progression of the 10 types of innovation. I think you first sort of started talking about them back in 1999, um, but they kind of grown and morphed through there and added some, added some research to there. Tell me a bit about this process of discovering and building on these 10 types of innovation. Well, you used the key word already, David. This is a discovery, not some consultant's fancy pants framework, okay? And by discovery, I'm using the word like a scientist would use it. When scientists use the word discovery, what they mean is something that's true, whether or not you know it's true, right? So eventually we discover that when you link two hydrogen atoms to an oxygen atom, it makes a water molecule, um, but before you know that, it was still true. And in that same sense, what we did about 19 years ago now was we took 1,200 innovation successes, and we looked over a long time horizon, about 200 years, David, and we tried to figure out if those 1,200 successes had anything in common. We cast our net pretty widely, so we looked all the way back to the Model T Ford, and we would look at things that were modern, too, like Cirque du Soleil circuses were kind of hot in that time frame. We looked at how you could return a Hertz rental car and get the receipt right on the tarmac instead of having to go in that crummy little booth and wait for somebody to process your order and dozens and dozens, hundreds of other such innovations. We stuck them all in computers, boiled them down, um, much the same way I guess you'd think of Campbell's condensing soup, and we discovered that there are now, and this is the brilliant part that we discovered, have always been 10 distinct types of innovation. Most um, innovations use only one or two, but the innovations that go on to change the world, to surprise people, to reinvent categories, and to resurrect entire brands are the ones that 
consciously or unconsciously, and it's mostly unconsciously, use five or more types of innovation orchestrated with some care. That's the heart of the discovery. That You mentioned that it's old, and that's true, but every two years we've been sort of obsessive-compulsive about redoing the analysis and trying to determine if there's anything new or any change in the relative rate of use of the types of innovation or the patterns of innovation use. And there have been some modern changes, and the book does report on the latest analytic discoveries in the 10 types of innovation. So there's a lot of things that won't surprise your your um, audience, David, like we're using a lot more partnering these days, and people are doing an awful lot more with, you know, customer experience, not just technical features and things like that. But we're, we try to keep track of the dynamics, not just the types. And and I like to think of it, I should say, as as not old. It's not that these this model of ten types of innovation is old. It's durable. That's that's the key. It's it's been around for a while because it it works as a structure. And in the new book, you kind of break up uh, these ten different types and lay them out in in this periodic table idea. And so you have the ten different types, but then they kind of fall into three different categories of, of types of innovation, the configuration, offering, and experience. I wonder if we could take those in turn, starting with configuration, and tell me about the different types of innovation companies go through where it's a configuration-based uh, innovation. Sure. So, um, And we've all had experiences with this. Uh, every time we use, say, for instance, the iTunes Music Store, it's really hard to figure out how to classify that. Apple itself classified it as a music store originally, but now they're increasingly calling it just the iTunes Store because you can go there to get professors' lectures or comedy shows or television shows. Or, or Leader or- Lab. Yeah, or Leader Lab. Exactly right. Good point. So um, uh, so the podcasts that people love uh, all come from there. It's hard to imagine how you would ca- classify it. And that is a lovely example of reconfiguring entire industries. And it's things like your ability to partner with others, your ability, we call that networking, uh, the profit model, how you get paid for whatever it is you do. It's also things like your own sort of internal things you might do inside your own firm to attract or inspire uh, good leaders or to train people and to leverage their talent um, and, um, and the like. So process innovation also is part of configuration. So when companies learn to do something hard or rare or costly, or they particularly learn to do it with partners, that's a big deal. And the reason why it's so particularly important for people to think about that consciously now, David, is because look at any gnarly problem, uh, you know, what we're going to do to eradicate, let's say, diabetes or what we might do to uh, deal with uh, the persistent um, educational uh, challenges of different districts in the country or what we might do to give people jobs um, more um, brilliantly almost always will require industries to be more integrated and coordinated rather than separated into little businesses that don't work well with each other. So configuration is a really big deal. And that set of four innovation types really does help people get there in a thoughtful, effective way. Well, and I have to say from my own uh, interest, research interest, et cetera, that's actually the part of this kind of continuum or table that I, I sort of enjoy the most. I think a lot of times we fall into this 
trap of thinking innovation means technology and it means a product or it means technology enhancing a service. But sometimes what, what really is the most disruptive is when we create a new profit model or we start collaborating with people and building a network in a different way uh, for our company. And that can actually be a much more disruptive and a more impactful uh, type of innovation in this configuration. But Exactly right. And these are things that don't have to be digital either. I mean, Walmart taught the whole world how to dance collectively with their logistics system beginning, you know, 25 years ago. And um, and the same thing increasingly happens whether you look at how a hospital functions in a community with maybe a bunch of satellites and the ability to have a, you know, a, a surgery center somewhere or a convenient, um, you know, um, ready clinic or something else that might even be inside of a retail store, um, minute clinic and the, and the like. These are all examples of people learning to partner well and to reconfigure so that they give people the services and systems and support that they need wherever they happen to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those are a lot of times one of the things that that drive innovation almost more so. Like we use the the Apple example and it was it it was there's a lot of technology involved that was a product offering, but it was this whole new sort of business model. Now, now that said, the other two sort of categories for these 10 types are the the offering and experience. I wonder if we could talk a bit about those in turn. Yeah, easily, cheerfully. Um, the heart of it is offering, of course. Um, take people that aren't trained in innovation, that are just naive, and, and, and further compound their difficulties by having them be confused with the most common misperception, which is that innovation is about enhanced creativity. Give them no training, stick them in a room, and ask them to innovate what they're going to come up with. More than 98 times out of 100, David, is new product ideas. So... Ask people what they think they're supposed to do when it comes time to innovate. They really think they're supposed to create a new product. This has never been true. It's never been the right answer, and yet it is genuinely believed to be universally the thing we should use as the basis for innovating and the core of what we should look for. So the two types of innovation that are in the center of the model, the offering subset, is um, this idea of product innovation, which is still important, but it's usually a minor part of a modern complex offering. And what we call, you know, sort of a product system. Um, and that's the way in which your product might, along with its software or its support, do something that's sort of magical, right? So, um, so that's how your product, if it's a smartphone or something else, begins to have a bunch of apps or it does things that nobody might have even originally anticipated when they were designing the hardware of the phone, which is a, sort of a beautiful thing to get different rates of change in different parts of the, of the device. Um, and then uh, there's the whole four set of types that have to uh, impinge on or help to shape the way in which you might experience a product, a service, or a brand. And that's a big deal, too, especially these days. So the channels that you use um, form the routes to market or the way in which you manage your brand or the way in which you create a bi-directional customer experience. Increasingly, customers are invited to comment on or to tailor or to adapt to the things that they're using. So you think about these things collectively and you quickly discover that almost nothing that we care about, David, uses just one type of innovation. 
literally everything we love in the world tends to use multiple types of innovation increasingly integrated with elegance and care. No, I, absolutely. And, and you know, I think the cool thing is the, about the book especially is that it's not just this descriptive, here are the different types and here's how companies innovated, et cetera, but there's a whole section on leading innovation, which is ultimately that's what we really want to know is how do we bring this about in our organization and what can we do? Let me let me ask you this. We, we have this integrated idea. I love that you said when you put people into a, a room and tell them to innovate, most of the time, 9.8 times out of 10, they will uh, sit down and do this kind of product focus. But how do we start? Where, where can we start as leaders, as, as managers, as aspiring leaders to, to bring about those other types of innovation, which either in concert with the product innovation or even by themselves can really drive the organization forward? Well, the first thing that I like to do is just to show people that if they're not thinking more comprehensively, that they're almost certainly going to find um, that they're going to be upstaged by somebody else who's just being, for whatever reason, again, consciously or not consciously more aggressive. Um, So one of the easiest ways for me to do this inside of a firm is to go back through their own history. So a standard approach I often use is to go to a firm, deconstruct the most important innovations in their history. By the way, David, fun fact no and tell, no company survives for more than 10 years these days without being innovative at some level. And um, so I go in, I deconstruct their most um, important innovations, and I show them that literally always the things in their own history that made their company what it is Uh, are using three, maybe four, maybe even five or six types of innovation. And the minute I reveal that unto them, they say, oh, my gosh, you know, we're not as we're not as bad at this as we thought. And we just weren't doing it on purpose. And from that point, it's a sort of an easy layup to be able to say, yeah, let's start to be conscious about this. Let's bring in the disciplines and the protocols that make it easier to think this way. Because I think, David, really the cruelest thing we do to smart people is we stick them in a room, we give them no training, we, you know, festoon the tables with toys as if they're supposed to be playful and say, okay, innovate now, right? I mean, it happens to be Thursday today. We could say, you couldn't do it yesterday, Wednesday, but now because I'm in the front of the room yelling at you, suddenly you can do innovation. Well, you know, guess what we've discovered? It's harder than that. And it deserves to be treated a little bit like, you know, surgery. Everybody needs to be trained. Everybody needs to know their role. You've got to orchestrate it all with poetic precision. And you got to pay attention to things that seem mysterious, like infection control, because even if the patient does some nifty knitting, the the whole team isn't managing infection control, the patient dies, right? So innovation is like that. And the minute we start to tell people that there's ways to get it to happen for real and on purpose, um, it works so much better. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, you know, one of the things I was thinking about when you said put them in a room with some toys, et cetera, is the, the other thing that tends to happen a lot of times is we develop this kind of office of innovation, right? Or a chief innovation officer, which sometimes those people can be really useful in, in helping to kind of st- structure and rework the organization to be more adept 
um, and more innovative. But other times it sort of becomes this thing where like, okay, well, this is the silo where we do innovation. Instead right. of, you know, you talk about this organizational capacity a bit later as these different components of, of innovation. And uh, I feel like, you know, unless you've got somebody who's thinking, okay, how can we imbue this through the whole organization <laughs> instead of just in this little chief innovation officer silo? Or, or I once, I once uh, t- someone once told me they worked in the Office of Innovation Management for the company, and I was just thinking, okay, that's a that's a weird, <laughs> a weird way yeah. to structure it. Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? Um, so, great insight. Um, chief innovation officers are mostly a way of of clarifying to um, more and more enterprises that it's a priority to innovate. So that's actually an important thing for you and I to acknowledge with some empathy, right? Everybody's trying to innovate. Here's a couple things that have immediate consequence. When all companies are now suffering from what I like to call Steve Jobs envy, and they're all trying to innovate more or less at the same time, it raises an important new question. As I try to improve innovation in my firm, am I innovating as fast as, slower than, or more swiftly than the firms against whom I compete, right? So rising tides and lifting all boats and all the usual cliches, you got to start paying attention to what's my rate of change and how am I doing relative to the others. So chief innovation officers can be just symbolic, you know, welcome to our company. These are the things we care about. We got a guy that, you know, runs innovation. Increasingly, of course, they're coming from the better schools with advanced training. So 10 of my colleagues teach at the world's number one rated graduate design school, which does give out advanced degrees, PhDs, and master's degrees in innovation. I also teach at Kellogg Graduate School of Management and McCormick School of Engineering at Northwestern. So those places give out advanced degrees in innovation. Many other of the better schools do this now, too. So your chief innovation officer can come with special training. But you're right to be skeptical, and you're specifically right to be skeptical about the idea of an office that so that manages innovation. Every time I've seen any firm centralize innovation, that is, either centralize it as a function or give only authority to a small team to think differently and have everybody else just try to run the business as usual, that's almost always a prescription for disaster. By the way, it was a popular model in the 70s at the Lockheed Skunk Works, um, and it worked well in those days. Um, But there's reasons to believe now that everybody needs to be embracing innovation and people need to be trained in it, and they need to use tools, methods, what we call tradecraft, that works instead of fails. Yeah, I I totally agree. And you know that's that's one of the reasons I when I got my hands on the copy of the book, in addition to it being beautiful enough to pick up and read through, I thought we we need to get this on the podcast not just because of the sort of descriptive effort and the the continuing research that you and your team are doing on innovation, but also in the advice on leading innovation. And the really cool towards the end of the book is this sort of innovation playbook uh, idea of different strategies you can use to kind of bring it through. So if I want to encourage our listeners, if you are looking for that, if you believe uh, what, what we at Leader Lab and what Larry and his team is are also selling, which is that innovation needs to be an organization-wide um, process, not just uh, in one little category or one skunk works. I encourage you to check out the 10 types of innovation. Um, in the meantime, Larry, I wonder if we could shift a little bit from the book to you and ask you a couple questions. Uh, the first being, what are you reading right now? 
Well, I always have about um, uh, eight or nine books going at the same time. As a rule, I try to read everything published on the topic of innovation. That used to be easy. It's now very hard and very demanding. So um, uh, one of the books on science research that I'm reading is Brilliant Blunders, which is a fairly detailed analysis of the classic mistakes done by guys like Darwin and Einstein that led to surprisingly productive and interesting new hypotheses about science. Uh, I love the book, and I'm nearly finished with it, uh, called Reinventing Discovery, which talks about how uh, there's a new era of network science, um, David, and it's really helping to understand that all great science progress these days is made by connecting multiple labs rather than having an individual scientist act like a lone ranger in a particular lab. Um, I'm also uh, reading a, um, a series of treatises on, on um, um, predictive analytics and big data, uh, just to try to keep up with those fields which are beginning to impinge on innovation. Um, I'm very fond of my colleague's book, Michael Rayner's book, uh, Three Rules, which talks about the classic decision patterns that help to separate well-run firms from not-so-well-run firms. Unbelievably brilliant research that he's done in that book, and, and it's a really um, major advance in, in management science. Kim Irwin, one of my co-professors at the Institute of Design and a former student has also just done a brilliant new book um, called um, uh, Communicating the New, which deals with the special problem in innovation of how when you have a terrifically bold new idea, you get human beings to understand it and to embrace it instead of to be afraid of it. Uh, so a bunch of new tradecraft there. So that's just some. Yeah, and it's funny you, you bring up Michael Rayner. He was a guest on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Three Rules mm -hmm. is, a, is an awesome read. Um, I wonder, you know, you, you talk about, we've talked a lot about the book, and we've hinted at the idea of what you and your team are, are normally doing, but what, what's next for you and what's next for your whole group? So um, my colleagues at Deloitte are quite keen on having us build what I like to call the world's most badass integrated innovation unit. So... Um, we're willing to take risks with our clients and to invest in the ideas that are bold. We're certainly willing to create the world's most advanced innovation diagnostics, which helps everybody to figure out how they're doing today, and the most advanced metrics, which tells them what sort of goals they should establish to get to the breakthroughs that they need. Uh, and beyond that, we're trying to take the ideas and 10 types and digitize them so that increasingly people will be able to use tools that are distributed on, on things like iPads to be able to construct the breakthrough innovations that they need. And we're continuing to push ways to do this dramatically cheaper than ever before with, you know, crowd research um, like uh, Kaggle and GigWalk and crowdsourcing and crowdfunding and, and cloud computing. We're just trying to make sure that the whole world can innovate more boldly than ever before, David, at a fraction of the cost that it used to take and a fraction of the time that it used to take. I mean, we figure we should disrupt the field just like everybody else does. Hmm. So. That, 
that's a good way to put it. And it's a it's a bold mission, but I have a feeling that the the guy who has spent 34 years studying one seemingly simple question around <laughs> innovation uh, is up for it. So we'll be we'll be looking forward to that. And in the meantime, the uh, not the first attempt, and certainly not the last attempt, but one of my favorite attempts in achieving that mission is the the book, The Ten Types of Innovation. Again, we encourage our readers to check it out. It's a it's a beautiful book. It's an innovative model for a book, uh, and ironically, it's an innovative model for a book that teaches an innovation model, which is awesome. Larry, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. It's a privilege to be on with your listeners, David, and with you, gracious interviewer, and appreciate the chance to be on Leader Lab. 